This is Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. In this series, we're taking you inside the UN's era-defining climate report by the hearts and minds of the scientists from all around the world who wrote it. Joelle, today we're talking about the mitigation of climate change. So what we could do to minimise it and whether or not we're on that path. The jury has reached the verdict and it is damning. So this is United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres in the press conference for the IPCC's report on climate change mitigation. It is a file of shame, cataloguing the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. He doesn't mince his words, does he? And next, we have Professor Greg Nemet. He was one of the lead authors of the report, and I spoke to him for this episode. There's kind of a dichotomy in the IPCC from people who see the real role of the IPCC is to alert policymakers that the world is on fire and light a fire under them to actually do something about it. We are on a fast track to climate disaster. Major cities underwater, unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms, widespread water shortages, the extinction of a million species of plants and animals. And we need to talk about urgency and the intensity of the impacts and how bad it's going to be if we don't do something. At this point, Joel, I was listening to Greg and I, I really remember clearly thinking, absolutely, Greg, right on. This is totally what I want the IPCC to do. And... I have to say, like, that's not my perspective. That's not my theory of change at all. And then he said that, and I was like, oh, oh, okay. I've got the wrong end of the stick here. That's that's not what Greg's trying to say at all. I feel like you need to empower people. If people hear bad news, they're often turned off. They're often turn their attention elsewhere, think about something more positive. And so, yeah, the problem is getting worse, and I agree with it. But I think the other part of it's important to emphasize is that the solutions are getting better. And that's a big part of the work that I do on cost reductions and adoption of technologies is they're way more affordable now. In a lot of cases, they're cheaper than fossil fuels without a carbon price, without subsidies. They're just beating them. So, yeah, I think it is an important moment because the problem is getting worse. But we've got these solutions now that are just so much more affordable than they were. Listening to Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. I'm Dr. Joel Gerges. I'm a climate scientist at the Australian National University. I'm also a lead author on the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I'm Michael Green. I'm a journalist and a friend of Joel's. And in this podcast, we're exploring the life of these hugely influential IPCC reports and the kind of thinking and feeling that goes into them. In this episode, Joel, as I said earlier, we're looking at the mitigation report and As with the whole series, we're really only touching on the edges of what's a vast body of work. It's true, there's a really huge amount of work in this area, but it's so nice to be finally talking about this part of the IPCC report. Sometimes we can be overly focused on the nuts and bolts of the science and all of its terrifying impacts that we forget that we have many solutions to address the problems that we have that that already exist, that could be rolled out tomorrow. 
We actually don't need to wait for a magic bullet solution to be invented before we start mopping up the damage caused by the burning of fossil fuels and the clearing of land. So the IPCC's Working Group 3 report is basically a detailed guide for how we can rapidly reduce greenhouse gas emissions across every aspect of society to stabilise the Earth's climate. And probably the most significant finding of the report is that there are options available right now across all sectors that could at least halve emissions by 2030. So is the path out of this big hole we're in through technological innovations or is it through reducing our use of resources in the first place? Today we're talking with Professor Greg Nemet, who we just heard from, he's from Canada, and Dr Yamina Saheb from Algeria, about two very different approaches to mitigating climate change. Good morning. We begin with the flood emergency in northern New South Wales with a woman still missing in waters around this tonight, Drenching rain and flash flooding causing a new emergency in our state's So, Joelle, last episode we began by talking about how there were huge floods on Australia's east coast in 2022, just as the IPCC report on the impacts of climate change was released. Well, about a month later, the next IPCC report came out and Australia's east coast was flooding again. For a town still cleaning up from unprecedented floods just earlier this month, this is yet another blow. Again, the timing couldn't have been more surreal. People had barely finished dealing with the devastation of the first round of flooding when another round of severe weather hit. My family in Lismore were still displaced from their homes and the local community was really stressed out about whether they should keep cleaning up or leave the area altogether. Yeah, I remember looking at the news and seeing people just kind of shocked that it was happening again. That is the word. It was shock. People really were in disbelief that, are you kidding me? Like, again? And they literally, literally had people had rewired their businesses and all this sort of stuff and then, oh, it's terrible. It was a nightmare. It was a chaotic time. It really was. You know, it was dominating the news as you've just, you know, played the clips. And then this report comes out basically showing all these solutions we have at our fingertips. And I think that is, it's really hopeful. So before we go back to Greg Nemet, I want to kind of recap on the lay of the land because I found it very interesting and illustrative to notice the kinds of researchers that work on the different parts of the IPCC report. So for the first volume, which you were a part of, Joel, there were lots of physicists and meteorologists and observational scientists who are kind of modelling and studying what's happening around the globe on different timescales. Yeah, so... It's probably the most detail-oriented group of people you're likely to encounter. And there's a reason why these reports only come out every seven years. It takes hundreds of these perfectionists that long to agree on the wording. (laughs) Um, And then we come to the second part on impacts and adaptation responses. And they're often geographers and ecologists, and that's who we heard from last episode. And then when it comes to mitigation, we tend to have economists and social scientists, and they're looking at human behaviour and policy and the kind of technology we have and how that all affects greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, so this group is really quite different from the people who worked on the physical sciences aspect of the report. So Working Group 3 deals with the science of solutions or sustainability, if you like, and the policies needed to implement them. So I actually secretly have an economics degree from many moons ago. I don't know whether I've ever told you that, actually. And so this is kind of my part of the report, maybe. I know that there are lots of shades of grey in science, always, 
But I think it's really nothing compared with what we have in the world of policy and economics and all these questions about how change happens and how it should happen. So my name is Greg Nimmit. I'm a professor of public affairs at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, and I work on low carbon innovation. Greg studies the processes behind technological change. Like, How does it actually happen? I worked in the private sector for seven years after my undergraduate degree. And I was working in Silicon Valley. I worked on a dot-com startup. And then he got a job working for a think tank doing a study of innovation across consumer products, information technology, healthcare, and energy. And energy was lower by a factor of 10 on every metric we looked at, like on research and development spending, on employment of scientists and engineers, on patents. And I just was like, wow, this is What a waste. And I was surrounded by all these smart people, risky investment, willing to take a a jump on lots of different things, and yet energy wasn't happening there. And so that's what I went to grad school to do. And the question is, what I still work on is, how can we stimulate innovation in low-carbon technologies? And how did you get involved with the IPCC? I wrote a book on the history of solar called How Solar Energy Became Cheap. I was really studying innovation and how that worked. But over the course of the research on that book, solar really went from something that was kind of interesting and kind of fast moving, but not a serious technology. And by 2017, 2018, solar became so inexpensive that companies were building really large solar facilities and it was beating fossil fuels without subsidies. And then when the IPCC project started forming, you know, there were multiple chapters that wanted to talk about the solar story. Like any researcher, Greg's up to his eyeballs in detail. You know, I've been working on this solar stuff since 2002. So, you know, I would go into archives and find conference proceedings from the 1950s and figure out someone made a statement about it costs $200 a watt to make a solar panel. Okay, that's $1958, what is it today? So I did a lot of that. And then the next step was, okay, where do the cost reductions come from? So like how much silicon material do they use in solar panels? How much was it 30 years ago? How much is it today? And so trying to find each of those data points. So Greg spent years crunching the numbers on how solar technology costs have come down. But along the way, I started getting the sense that even though I had collected all this data and lots of other people did too and the data sets were getting bigger and better and you could say more about them I still felt like we were missing a really important part of the story and so I did a completely different set of data collection which was to go talk to people and so when I wrote that book I talked to like 75 people in 18 countries and it it really made it clear to me that there are important factors that weren't going to show up in the data just because we didn't have information about it. But when you talk to people in the industry, you keep hearing it again and again. Like, for example, one of the items that I came across was just how much that people moved around, like they traveled. There was one guy who grew up in Australia, got his PhD in Canada, travelled to the US to meet everyone in the industry there, then moved back to Sydney, bought a bunch of secondhand equipment from the US, started making panels, then hired students from China. His students went back to China, then started the solar industry there. Then they sold panels to Germany, Italy, Spain and California. And then there's the money. Those early Chinese solar startups were funded by US pension funds. So retirement accounts for teachers, which were looking to increase their returns. 
And so it was just this global innovation system that really made things happen. Greg got to contribute his findings from this research to the IPCC report, both on costs and policy. One of the key findings of this part of the IPCC report is that renewable energy and battery technologies have undergone incredibly rapid changes in costs and implementation. So one of the statistics that really blew me away was that since 2010, the costs of solar and wind energy and batteries have decreased by up to 85%, which is hugely significant. And at the same time, there have been large increases in the deployment of clean energy technologies. So, for example, globally, the uptake of solar has increased by more than 10 times and electric vehicles by more than 100 times. And then we get into the reasons. And this is what I work on is like, how do we actually make that happen more or for other technologies? The IPCC report lists the kinds of policies that made a difference. So public funding for research, public funding for pilot projects, and also things like subsidies to incentivize people to buy them. So it was just really good to say, look, this is what did it. It wasn't just luck. It wasn't just markets. It wasn't just entrepreneurs. Like, those are important. But there was policy behind all of that. Another key point in this part of the report is that it's actually the small-scale technologies that are moving the fastest. In contrast to what I was taught in graduate school, which is... The energy system's gigantic. The climate system is huge. To make a difference, you have to go big. And the only way to go big is with large-scale technologies. And so the implications are, if you're serious about climate change, you get serious about nuclear power plants, or you get serious about carbon capture at large coal and natural gas facilities. Stuff like wind and solar is fun. It's, you know, looks neat, but it's not a serious solution because it's too small. And what like me and others looking at all the data shows is that the small stuff goes faster. It grows faster. It learns faster. That means the costs come down faster. And, you know, I think it's pretty intuitive to people. If you think of things like computers and how they've gotten cheaper and things like phones and how they've gotten more powerful, it's, it's dramatic and it's fast. And it's because we make millions of those things and billions of some of them. And that's what we're doing with solar panels. And that's what we're doing with wind turbines. And that's what we're doing with electric vehicles and heat pumps and LED lighting and a bunch of small things like that. And they're all playing a really big role. And the big stuff is just going slowly, like large nuclear power plants or carbon capture plants. And so it really has changed my thinking that I think it's going to turn out that small unit scale technologies are going to turn out to have a larger impact than large technologies. You're listening to Fear and Wonder. We'll be back after a short break. Fear and Wonder is proudly brought to you by the Climate Council. My name is Professor Leslie Hughes, and I'm a former IPCC author and one of the founding councillors of the Climate Council. Back in 2013, thousands of Australians chipped in to create a new independent and community-funded organisation after the Abbott government abolished the Climate Commission. Since then, we've played the important role of being Australia's own independent, evidence-based organisation on climate science, impacts and solutions. Our vision is that by 2025, Australia's emissions are on a steep downward trajectory, with projects and policies in place to see us cut emissions 75% by 2030 and achieve net zero by 2035. 
This is not an easy task, but we believe it can be done. It requires a major shift in action and attitude from all levels of government, industry, business and the community. To find out more about how you can catalyse action on climate and support our campaigns, please visit climatecouncil.org.au slash the conversation. Hi, I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. We work with academic experts to make their work accessible so we can all be better informed. Everything we do is free to read and free to republish. Our only agenda is informing you, but we need your support. Every donation helps ensure quality information is available to everyone. Become a donor today. Go to donate.theconversation.com or follow the link in the show notes. We're back with Fear and Wonder. If you're enjoying the show, please rate it and review it and share it with everyone you can. So, Joelle, in this episode, we're dipping our toes into climate change mitigation. So Professor Greg Nemet was just describing how policies like public research and funding and subsidies stimulated the dramatic decreases in costs for solar energy. But is more technology the answer? I am Yamina Saheb. I lecture at the Institute of Political Science in Paris, uh, Sciences Po Paris. And my daily job is about analyzing energy and climate policies and mainly climate mitigation policies with the aim of improving them. Yamina's research relates to the idea of sufficiency. And this IPCC report was the first time that that idea had been included in a comprehensive way. I am always pleased to talk about sufficiency because it's for many people, it's unknown. So Yamina was a lead author on the buildings chapter, but she contributed to many other parts of the report, including an extra section on the modelling of mitigation scenarios. But to understand what she means by sufficiency, I think it helps to go back to her childhood in Algeria. I grew up in Algiers, in the capital city, and I grew up in a nice part of Algiers, during the French time, it was called the, the Petit Paris, a small Paris. I am from middle class, but I was raised with the idea that we should not waste food, we should not waste water, we should not waste natural resources. In Algiers, so it's located in North Africa, and we had the drought for, for several years. I remember when I was a teenager, we had water issues. So we had to organize ourselves to address the challenge of water rationing. We did not have the word for not using the word sufficiency in my family or in, in Algiers. I was not hearing this word. It was just about the, the fact that you don't have the right to waste natural resources. This is, this is what I learned. So for me, when later on they came to Paris and they discovered the concept of sufficiency, then I thought, oh, this is the normal thing that I was used to do. There is nothing new. But then I realized that there is no scientific evidence about that and that the knowledge was lost mainly in industrialized countries. So the IPCC defines sufficiency policies as a set of measures and daily practices that avoid demand for energy, materials, land and water, while delivering human well-being for all within planetary boundaries. In French, we use the word sobriété for sufficiency, which would be sobriety, but it's not what the English people use. So sufficiency is not a new concept. It's a very old concept in reality. You, you can find this in all old civilizations. But with industry, we became more 
technology-oriented people. We were raised with the belief that technology can do everything for us. Whatever issue you are facing, technology will solve the, solve the problem. So that, that's why we lost the knowledge how to deal with challenges without technologies. In Yamina's first engineering job, she was optimising heating and cooling systems in buildings. My professor at that time, she told us that each time you are called to put heating or cooling system, so this means that the building was badly designed by an architect and then your expertise will allow to correct the mistake by putting in place heating or cooling system. And of course, when you do that, this means that you take more resources because you need to take resources for your heating and cooling system to build it. And then you also need energy resources to run your heating or cooling system. And it happens that historically, the energy sources that we have been using are fossil fuel sources. So they have an impact on climate change. So basically, the starting point is that the building is wrongly built and you think you are coming up with a solution to correct this mistake, but your solution will trigger so many other impacts that are not sought at all. So what you mean is talking about is an approach that short circuits the need for energy in the first place. If you take, for example, in buildings, old buildings have been built by considering the surrounding environment and the local climate. And this is why, for example, if you go to Spain, it is very, very warm, Spain. But the old buildings in Granada, for example, when you are inside, even in summertime, you don't need an air conditioner. While for us, we were raised with the idea that you need a cooling system or heating system. And we cannot even imagine building differently. And, and maybe what sufficiency is about is about not only creating new narratives, but it's also about rethinking, reshifting the brain, how the brain thinks. In the context of building sufficiency in a wealthy country, it could include things like repurposing unused existing buildings or prioritising the construction of homes that can house more than one family or reducing the overall size of homes. It's a Big cultural change, right? Like, I can see why she says that it's about shifting how our brain thinks. Yeah, look, I think it is probably a really big cultural change for people in the West, but in other parts of the world, people are already doing these things and and these are things we just have to get on and, and actually do. And when you look at the IPCC's, you know, statistics on this, it basically says that across the building, transport and food sectors, we can reduce emissions by between 40 and 70% by 2050 with sufficiency measures, which is huge. And this relies on avoiding long-haul aviation, shifting to plant-based diets and improving the energy efficiency of buildings. And they also say that wealthy people contribute disproportionately to greenhouse gas emissions. So there's huge potential here for the reduction of emissions while maintaining a really high standard of living. I think that there's some people for whom that idea is just not appealing at all, right? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Because now people are are so far removed away from how, you know, they might have a product in their house, but they don't know, you know, the full chain of events that led to that Mm. development of that product and the embodied energy associated with, with it. And also think that I think in this era of complexity, people are returning to these simple things. A lot of people are trying to grow their own food and all that sort of stuff. I actually think people are yearning for it. Mm. I think life's too complicated. And I think there are a lot of people that want to get back in touch with those basics of life. 
When I was growing up, there was that old sustainability motto, which was reduce, reuse and recycle. And what Yamina is talking about here makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, like I agree. It's, it definitely sounds like something that needs to happen for equity reasons. I think that there are some people that do this voluntarily, but not enough people. So how is this sort of change going to happen? So actually, I think there's a little story from Yamina's life that illustrates her thoughts about how it might happen. So when I contacted her first, she didn't reply for a little while to me because things were a bit chaotic while she and her family were renovating. I was curious, given your interest in sufficiency, what did you do with your renovation? So there is not much you can do in Paris as an individual for your renovation in terms of sufficiency because we live in an area that is our facade is protected. It's a multifamily building, so you need an agreement of all the families living here, which is impossible to get. Yamina did manage to insulate her apartment, but the heating in the building is controlled centrally and their bills determined according to their floor area, not their heating needs. And so is that a kind of illustration of the importance of public policy rather than relying on individual action? Exactly. And when I did the renovation, it's just to have a case study, a real case study, about the limitations of what individuals could do. I will ask to have a meter for my heating consumption because there is no reason for me to pay for the heating of other people who did not insulate their homes. In terms of energy gains, it's not as big as if we would have done the full building, actually. And the cost would have been lower as well. If it would have been required by law and we would have had scheme to help people to have the overall building, then it would have been a different story. So in the case of France, I calculated a few years ago, we don't need more public money to renovate the overall stock, but we need to use public money differently. There's so much to say about this stuff, right, isn't there? Because... From my point of view, I'm like, yes, there is some individual responsibility here and we can make change individually, but also we're living within larger sort of structures that force us to live certain ways or make it difficult not to. And so in that bigger picture also, I feel like no one makes money from people not buying things. So that's a reason why it isn't happening. I think that's what appeals to me about what Yamina's talking about here because I think she is arguing that there could be public policy measures to help to create some of these kinds of changes across the board rather than just relying on people to make haphazard changes if they're interested. You don't want to let policymakers off the hook. You don't want it to just be the individual's <laughs> responsibility because it isn't enough. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I think they have to both go in tandem. One thing I came across when I was researching this sort of stuff in terms of social change for, for my book was that you only really need 25% of a population to shift the social norm. The IPCC talks about all levels of, you know, government all the way down to individuals. And so we have, you know, a, a huge swag of things available to us in terms of trying to address this. I mean, what we're talking about here is huge, but I think it's also the opportunity for really big wins without a huge amount of um, inconvenience for people's lifestyles in many ways. Another way of thinking about sufficiency might be to contrast it with two other kinds of change that Yamina talked about. So in the IPCC report, they discuss something called the SER framework, and that's sufficiency, efficiency, and renewables. It's a little bit similar to the idea that you talked about earlier, Joel, which was reduce, reuse, recycle, in that the SER framework is also a hierarchy. You start with sufficiency, then go for efficiency, and then renewables. Whereas Yamin actually thinks that at the moment, sufficiency is the bit that we're largely missing. In 
climate mitigation policies, they are all technology focused. So they are either focused on efficiency, efficiency, which is an incremental improvement of different technologies, which is reality. However, each incremental improvement requires more natural resources, which means that you create greenhouse gas emissions elsewhere. Yamin is actually making a really good point here. So it's like investing in a more efficient fridge, which is great, but you still need to buy a whole new fridge to get that gain. And then the other policies are decarbonisation of the supply. Decarbonisation of the supply, it has always been about replacing fossil fuels, which are the polluting energy sources, with clean energy sources, with renewable energy sources. But in reality, given that our energy demand has been increasing all the time, we never succeeded to reduce it really. So all the renewable capacity, the additional renewable capacity has been used for the additional energy demand that we had. So we have not been able yet to displace fossil fuels with renewables. So again, Yamin is making a really important point here, saying that although we're using energy more efficiently, we still have high levels of overall consumption. So our demand for electricity is still increasing and we're not removing fossil fuels from the energy supply on the scale that we need just yet. So she's arguing that efficiency and decarbonisation aren't enough. But actually something that I found really interesting is that within the mitigation report, there are these contrasting ideas and approaches. So while the part on buildings and also the part on the sort of demand responses like consumer behaviour talk a lot about this idea of sufficiency, it isn't actually included in any of the models of mitigation pathways. So the sets of policy measures that could take us on the kind of trajectories that would keep us under two degrees. So the mitigation pathways modelled in the IPCC report looked at so-called shared socioeconomic pathways that consider different policies, technologies and economic development pathways around the world all the way out to the end of this century. Uh, When you look at all these scenarios, there are no sufficiency measures in these scenarios. And it's just unbelievable that given the climate crisis, given the situation we are facing, The existing scenarios, the scientific community does not include sufficiency measures, which we estimated for the chapter on the demand services, chapter five of our report. We estimated that the mitigation potential for demand side could go up to 70%. So this potential is neglected, not considered at all. Then what happens is that when you don't consider this potential, so you end up in 2050 not decarbonized. You cannot decarbonize your economy. All the scenarios have what is called overshoot. So overshoot means breaching our global targets, then coming back down as climate policies around the world are adopted. And then, because we are technology-oriented people, we were raised with technologies, so what, what they do, the scenario builders, they imagine carbon capture and storage technologies Uh, air uh, carbon capture, different uh, carbon capture technologies. Carbon capture and storage refers to trapping the carbon dioxide emitted by things like gas or coal power plants. And then there's carbon dioxide removal. And the way that's modelled is one of the most controversial things in this report. So carbon dioxide removal involves capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then storing it on land or in the ocean or under the earth or in products. So that could be things like reforestation or making biochar or using biofuels with carbon capture and storage or direct air carbon capture. So just like finding a way to 
pull carbon dioxide out of the air and store it durably. And they imagine that we will decarbonize with these carbon capture technologies, which is just not possible. We know that it's not possible because then when you look at the carbon capture solutions project that has been put in place, our countries have put a billion of euros in this project, but most of them are failure. And what is captured is very, very low compared to the investment. So what she's arguing is that we have a whole range of other policy measures available which aren't being modelled. And instead, the models are relying on carbon removal, on the idea that we overshoot our targets and then we claw it back by 2100 with the hope that those technologies become available and usable in the future. This IPCC report is the first time where we show the potential for demand reduction. And it's the first time that the concept of sufficiency is included. So this means that we have a potential to reduce emissions if we act upfront instead of relying forever in technologies and especially in unproven technologies at a global scale. But this gives me hope that we could decarbonize our economies. She says that if we're going to decarbonize, we need to not only completely transform our policies, but also the way we build these scenarios. The scenarios for the future are based on the current policies. They just make them more stringent. They do not imagine breakthrough in policies. What sufficiency is, is breakthrough in policies as well. But this is not yet captured by scenarios. And the fact that it's not captured gives me hope because this means that the potential to reduce emissions is still high. I should say, actually, on the critique that Yamina offers about carbon removal, Greg Nemet is also looking at innovation in carbon removal technologies. The modelling in the IPCC report that says... If we're going to stabilize the climate, we're going to need to do substantial carbon removal by mid-century. And so there the question is, how could we do that? How could we do that justly? How could we do that er, economically efficiently? How could we do it environmentally benignly? And then also, how could we do it fast enough? Like to do enough carbon removal to remove like 10% of what we put into the air every year now uh, would be a tremendous scale up. And so you know, given my work, I kind of say, well, how would it compare to how we scaled up solar or wind or electric vehicles or cell phones or other technologies? And it turns out it's it's within the range of all the other stuff we've done, but it's very much at the high end. Yeah, it's like a, it's sort of imagining into the future something that, like, to me, I listen to that sort of stuff and it's just like, it seems impossible, but y- your case is, well, there has been examples of fast change. Yeah, certainly 15 years ago, people said, we're going to run 3% of the world's electricity on solar by 2020, people would say that's impossible. Like, it's not sunny all the time. There's winter. It's too small. But that's what we're doing today. And it really, the way it's growing, it could easily be 50% in the next couple of decades. So, yeah, some things that seemed impossible sometimes turn out to actually work. So relying on historical analogs and saying, why? Why was it that solar was able to grow so quickly from something so tiny? Why are electric vehicles growing in the same way? Could direct air capture or biochar, could they do that? Or is there something different about them that makes it need some other model or some other mechanism? Or is it just not possible because there's something about them that's going to slow it down? So yeah, those are the questions we're working on and asking in our our current research on that. Greg was part of a team that just put out a big report about carbon dioxide removal, and they found that 
right now, 99.9% of carbon removal is afforestation or reforestation or management of existing forests. So the other methods out there, like bioenergy, which would be biofuels, but then capturing the carbon dioxide emitted when they're burned, or direct air capture, which is just pulling carbon dioxide out of the air, those are virtually non-existent and there aren't really any actionable plans for developing them which is something that we would have to do immediately because at the moment we're assuming they'll play a major role in keeping us well under two degrees warming which is what the world signed up for with the Paris Agreement. Obviously something doesn't quite add up here so advances in carbon dioxide removal need to materialise really really quickly but as Yamina was saying that's not going to happen so we need to use other ways of reducing emissions because we can't rely on non-existent carbon dioxide removal technologies to save the day. Greg is also thinking about some of the same kinds of things that Yamina is, about how to reduce consumption, not just make it more efficient or power it with renewables. So on one hand, there's stuff that's hard to reduce emissions on, like aviation, agriculture and industry. So that's a big reason why we need to do some carbon removal. At the other end would be like, well, maybe we just don't need as much energy as we think. Maybe there's ways that we can reduce demand for energy that leads to attractive lifestyles, appealing cities, new services that people haven't had before and yet still have less energy consumption. And so that's another work I'm doing. And there's, you know, there's a technological component to that that, you know, is about new devices and digital technology helping with a lot of that, like shared mobility. Not everybody needs to have their own vehicle. So you can use, you know, technology, some of which we already use that vastly reduces the resources that are needed. Greg's obviously got a different way of approaching that problem than Yamina, but it's interesting that he's thinking about the same kind of thing. Mm, It is. There's also behavioural change that is important as well, and so that's something I'm working on, but also working with new people and learning a lot about too, is like how does the psychology work that leads people to choose low-meat diets or to switch to public transportation or to bicycling or or, other, or smaller footprint on their homes and things like that. And I think to me, I'm more and more convinced that we can't really get there in terms of a, a stable climate where things work well and they're fair without finding ways to reduce our energy consumption as well. Okay, Joel, so I want to test out something on you here. While I've been working on this episode and thinking about mitigation scenarios, thinking about the future, I have been pondering something that I'm calling the terrified to calm continuum. So on a day-to-day level, I'm actually quite a cheerful person, but there is something very appealing for me, both kind of intellectually and emotionally about the kind of more concerned and critical stance that Yamina seems to take about where we're heading. And so I'm wondering where you are on that continuum, Joel. Are you terrified or calm or somewhere in between? Look, for me, I probably wouldn't think about things in terms of being terrified or calm. I'm neither of those things, really. I would probably consider myself a realistic optimist. So I appreciate that things are probably going to get worse before they get better, but I have faith in humanity's ability to sort this out if enough people care. So, look, if I I actually do delve into feelings of being completely overwhelmed by fear, I mean, people like me just can't get on and do the actual work and the science that we need. So, 
that's not a helpful way of thinking about things at this moment in time. But I'm certainly not calm either in the sense that I don't, you know, sit there feeling really at peace with where things are in terms of the state of the world right now. When I hear about overshoot and relying on non-existent carbon removal technology, I must say I do shift over a little towards the terrified end of the continuum. So I thought I'd turn to Greg for a final word of encouragement. So the the kind of positive outlook that you take on it, like trying to focus on on solutions or examples where we have had some success, why do you choose that approach? Like how, how do you kind of get to that? Well, I, you know, it's fine. I had to do a graduation speech a couple of months ago here. I used a quote from uh, Karl Popper, I think, who said something like, we have a moral imperative to be optimistic because we're agents. Like, it's not like this climate change or this energy system is getting done to us. It's like we have a role to play here either as citizens, as scientists, as people who vote, as people who work in companies or work in governments. You know, it's all the result of human activity. And so what we do about it is also the result of humans too. So you kind of have to be optimistic for some of this stuff because whether it's policy or technology or behavioral change, it might work. And the fact that it might work is a reason to be positive. So, Joel, today we've been exploring these two kind of different approaches to how change might happen. One being that technology is going to come along to save us, or another being that we need to fairly radically shift our approach to how we live our lives and, and avoid the excess consumption or need for energy that, that's getting us into the trouble in the first place. I think we have touched on two important elements that are quite contrasting. And and I think they are really important to talk about together because one of them is something that people feel agency around. So they feel like they can do something about those behavioural changes around things like what you mentioned was talking about with sufficiency, like do they really need that extra fridge or whatever, car, that, that idea about overconsumption in the West, particularly when developed or industrialised nations, is huge. Mm. But then technology obviously has to be a part of the solution because of the scale of climate change and, and we can't just sort of tackle it alone. But obviously all of these things need to be happening in tandem and I think that's really the take-home, I think, of this. But as I said, it's really understanding that all of these approaches exist right yeah. now and, and we don't have to wait We can still develop those technologies in the future, but we have major work to do ahead of us in terms of decarbonising in this coming decade. Yeah. The question for me that lingers, having come all the way through this episode, is whether the sorts of policies that Yamina's talked about in limiting consumption and reducing energy demand can be introduced and how they would be introduced or whether we'll continue with the sorts of policy approaches that are less disruptive to our established economic order in the short term. Next time on Fear and Wonder, it's our last episode and we're travelling to West Africa, to two neighbouring countries, to Senegal and Mauritania. Hello, I'm Ada Jong-Nyang from Dakar, Senegal, at the east coast of the Atlantic. We're finding out about the final part of the IPCC report, the synthesis of it all. Fear and Wonder is produced by me, Michael Green, and co-hosted by Dr Joelle Gerges from the Australian National University. 
with sound engineering and design and extra wisdom from John Chia, script editing by Nicole Kirby. Thanks to the show's executive producer, Ben Clark, and the conversations editor, Misha Ketchell. Fear and Wonder is sponsored by the Climate Council. We recorded on Wurundjeri land at the State Library of Victoria. Original music in this episode by Seapelt. And finally, Joelle wrote about her experience as an IPCC author in her new book, which is called Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. Go find it online or in any good bookstore.